your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, October 14th. I'm Terry Arango with my guest, Dr. Richard Fry. Dr. Richard Fry is an assistant professor, Department of Pediatrics, Division of Neurology at the University of Texas Houston Medical School. Dr. Fry earned his MD and his PhD from Georgetown University. He completed his residency in pediatrics at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital and his residency in neurology at Children's Hospital Boston. He is an expert on dyslexia as well, and his autism clinic is at the University of Texas Health Science Center, Department of Child and Adolescent Neurology, Department of Pediatrics. Dr. Fry, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure, uh, Terry. To our listeners, this program will contain medical information, but it is not intended as medical advice. Before using any significant biomedical interventions or changing an established regimen, please consult with the individual's treating physician who provides regular medical oversight. Dr. Fry, in your opinion, what is autism? Well, autism, as we know, is a combination of um, behavioral defined characteristics um, in a child. The, uh, it's recently, within the past few decades, that we've realized that there is a biological basis, a very strong biological basis for autism. And I think it's the challenge now to really correlate um, the changes that we see in the body and the brain with the behaviors that we define as autism. I wonder how anybody could think anything in the body did not have a biological basis. I don't know. It's a mystery to me, too. Okay. First of all, um, we were going to discuss uh, language today. Where are expressive and receptive language processed in a brain that's considered neurotypical? Well, um, the uh, language centers are, are developmental. That is, um, over time, during childhood, um, they start to develop from very early on. And where they're believed to end up is in the left hemisphere, um, particularly um, back there's a receptive area, which is back by the ear, which um, is in the area of the, what we call the temporal cortex and the parietal cortex. And then there's another area in the front, um, in the frontal lobe, called Broca's area, which is um, responsible for expressive speech and expressive um, language. Now, there's other areas that are responsible for reading, which are also located in, in the occipital lobe. That is the part of the, the, the brain that you see with, which is all the way in the back. And we're starting to learn that also not only the left hemisphere, but the right hemisphere has some role in language, too, in more of understanding language and comprehension. So it's really an evolving um, evolving science, but mostly the critical areas are in the left hemisphere of the brain. Okay, so you've studied these areas of the brain uh, with some tests, and let's just describe a couple of the tests. Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or fMRI, and uh, 
Encephalography. Did I pronounce that right? Yes, ma- magnetoencephalography. Okay. Um, uh, you know, either way is fine. Um, those are our two primary uh, ways of looking at uh, functional changes in the brain. Um, every time the brain becomes activated, um, the neurons um, fire uh, certain types of electrical potentials. So, and this causes changes in the brain. There's uh, metabolic changes, and these metabolic changes um, are are a result of the neurons needing nutrition and um, and needing more supplies so that they can work. So, when they're activated, they actually tell the blood vessels and the supportive structures in the brain that um, they need more oxygen. Um, that actually changes the um, the amount of oxygen that actually comes to that part of the brain. Those changes are then um, visualized with functional magnetic resonance imaging. We can actually look at the proportion of hemoglobin that has oxygen on it and doesn't have oxygen on it and, and watch as these changes occur. One of the advantages of this is that uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging has exquisite uh, spatial resolution. That is, you can pinpoint the area of the brain that's asking for these fuels and needs the energy. And you can say, well, that part of the brain is active at any time. The disadvantage is that um, these changes, these metabolic changes, um, um, ch- um, change on a, um, on a second time scale. That is, over seconds. And the brain operates on a millisecond time scale. That is, a thousand times faster. So we have something called magnetoencephalography. And magnetoencephalography actually measures these changes in the electrical potential of the neurons that are occurring. Um, What has to happen is neurons have to be synchronized. Probably about 10,000 neurons have to have some type of synchronized potential at one time to actually create a signal that's detectable by, by magnetoencephalography. And magnetoencephalography can measure these changes on a millisecond time scale. However, it's not very good at telling us exactly where these changes are occurring on a millimeter spatial scale. Its, uh, its resolution is much coarser. So sometimes what we do is we use these um, tools together, magnetic um, magnetoencephalography and functional magnetic resonance imaging to get the best of both worlds. Okay. And by using both of these, and I'm going to call the magnetoencephalography MEG, um, by using both of these, what have we learned about the organization of the cognitive language processing network in individuals with autism? Well, um, there's been many studies to look at the organization um, of language, and we know that um, first of all, it's different. Um, there's studies that have used different types of techniques and different types of stimuli um, to um, detect changes in receptive and expressive language, um, and to look at how the brain, how the brains of children with autism actually process language, and how that changes over time. One of the most important things is not to find out that um, these language centers aren't working, but to find out how they can repair themselves over time. 
Um, we know that uh, the typical child with autism is affected and, and shows um, signs of, of language dysfunction very early on. And then some children um, will be able to regain the ability to speak and communicate. Uh, one of the important things is to find out what makes children that can eventually speak and communicate differ from those that can't. Mm -hmm. And we are finding that there are differences. And this is important because if we cannot catch the changes in the brain and correct them early on, we need to know how to help the brain repair itself. Wow. So you could actually... I have two questions here from what you said. You could actually uh, do some neuroimaging with a child before they started a therapy such as uh, applied behavioral analysis and or speech therapy and or chelation, and you could look ahead of time and then you could look afterward. That would be the um, best thing to do, and we hope to be able to use these tools uh, diagnostically, maybe to find different subsets of children um, with uh, different damage or, I shouldn't say damage, just a lack of development of certain areas. Understand which parts of the brain can take over the, um, the functions that are necessary and then tailor our therapies to really help the brain mold itself or remold itself so that these areas that can take over and, uh, and, uh, and are functional can help um, become functional within the language network. Right. Um... I think that uh, Dr. Schneider's work found that areas where you would expect some language to be processed were actually being processed in a different place um, in the subjects with autism that they looked at. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. So, And we've heard about with stroke patients that when they have therapy, um, another part can take over. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. So is it a matter of... Is it a matter of developing um, the part that's supposed to have been doing it, say, in you or I, or is it a matter of having another part compensate? If a child is processing language in a place you wouldn't expect, where you and I wouldn't be uh, processing it, then will they be able to eventually process it in what we would think is the right place, or would we be helping them process it elsewhere? Does that make sense? It, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so the question is whether um, you really want to repair the parts that aren't working and, and should be working in, in the neurotypical individual, or you want to use areas um, that are what we call compensatory. Right. And uh, and we we know this um, probably you know the best functional imaging um, work developmentally is in dyslexia, and we're only starting to know now over probably about 25 years of imaging um, how the brain is actually remolding itself into adulthood in individuals with dyslexia. And hopefully we can use these same models to understand autism. And what it seems is that, yes, there are parts of the brain that don't typically that aren't typically involved in the language network, which now take over those functions and help the brain process language. Um, and, um, and we're seeing this um, in children with autism. Um, the work uh, that we've done with um, magnetoencephalography has actually uh, shown that, uh, that the right hemisphere 
of the brain takes over some of these language functions, um, but in a different way than we, what we would expect. Um, it seems that, uh, that the left hemisphere of the brain is still working, but it needs help from the right hemisphere. And information transfers over um, from the early portion of processing of language to the later portion of processing language and goes over to the right hemisphere for further processing. Um, and it seems like from the uh, studies that have been done is this is really correlated or associated with functional improvements in language. All right, this is fascinating, and we'll talk more about this when we come back with Dr. Richard Fry. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. If you've tried everything on the market and can't seem to get the radiant results you want from your skincare routine, it's time you stop shopping and start listening. Skin Health Today will help you take charge and start making smart choices for a lifetime of radiant skin and positive self-image. Join host Celeste Hilling and her esteemed panel of experts every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Skin Health Today on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within, your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Richard Fry. And uh, Dr. Fry, you were telling us about... Um, your studies with uh, receptive language organization and high-functioning autism using MEG, you were telling us what your study had shown. And uh, prior to that, what did other studies show? 
Well, and the interesting thing is that um, I think our study um, helped define um, what we've uh, seen in other studies and other studies that have um, used um, MEG before but haven't done um, functional localization, that is, to actually place the activity in one specific part of the brain, but to look generally where the potentials are coming from, have shown that um, that children, as they um, as they grow older and ones that become more functional, tend to have language move over towards the right hemisphere. And this is something that um, is analogous to to individuals with stroke. We know that um, individuals um, that have large strokes in the left hemisphere, sometimes the uh, um, speech can move over to the right hemisphere or parts um, of the brain that um, were responsible for um, processing speech use the right hemisphere's um, side. But what um, our study showed was that, uh, that it was not that all of the circuitry and the networks for processing language moved over to the right hemisphere, but that the right and left hemisphere seemed to be working together and communicating with each other. Um, and um, so this suggests that, uh, that the left hemisphere, which is supposed to take over language as a child grows older, isn't doing that and needs help from the right hemisphere. And those children that can actually allow their right hemisphere to do that um, probably will become more um, functional um, regarding their ability to communicate. One of the things, though, that, that um, we have to think about is uh, that the brain itself um, is, um, is, only has a limited amount of ability to um, operate. And the right hemisphere is usually doing something else. So the fact that it's actually taking over function for the left hemisphere means that what it was doing before, it may not be able to do now. And one thing that concerns me is that we know that the right hemisphere is very important in uh, nonverbal communication for, pro for um, processing prosody of speech, that is inflection of speech and emotions. Um, and one of the things that, um, that is concerning is that if this part of the brain, the right hemisphere, is actually processing low-level speech to understand, will it also be able to process emotions and nonverbal cues? And could this be actually a reason why we see that uh, children have deficits in these areas even though they um, improve in their ability to communicate? The answer is we don't know, and it is a possibility. But it also points to the fact that we need to know a lot more. We need to know how the brain repairs itself and what the consequences of that repair is and how therapies can help or hurt um, repair of the brain. Wow, that's really fascinating. All right. Um, now, you had found a pattern of cortical reorganization that was similar to dyslexia and cortical hyperexcitability, as was documented for Rett syndrome. And does this in any way suggest uh, that there were similar ideological aspects or at least similarities in clinical presentation? Well, I think that um, there's, there's um, two parts to that question. The first is uh, the similarities with dyslexia. And, yes, we, we see that children that have um, difficulty reading early on 
start to compensate possibly um, or at least use the um, frontal areas of their brain to, pro- to help process words. Now, we found that um, the younger child we studied with, uh, um, uh, with high-functioning autism was doing that exact same thing. That is, probably using the left um, frontal area to compensate for actually um, um, for processing speech. So one of the things that we think is that there may be some type of parallel between dyslexia and autism, maybe other developmental disabilities, in the way that the brain repairs itself, um, the uh, sequence of events that occurs. And, and if we start to learn more about this, we can actually learn how to help the brain along from early on um, if there are these developmental disabilities. The other finding that there seemed to be some hyperexcitability um, was uh, was very interesting, and it goes along not only with Rett syndrome but with other lines of evidence um, regarding hyperexcitability of the neurons in autism. Um, one of the things we worry about with hyperexcitability is uh, one seizures, um, and the second thing is um, the inability of the brain to really learn and operate because the brain needs a balance between excitability and, um, and, and also inhibition. And if the brain is too excited, it may not be able to learn um, as, as it grows and it may not be able to mold itself correctly. Of course, one of the very interesting things with um, the parallel with uh, Rett syndrome is the fact that um, we're starting to find out that there are signs of mitochondrial disorders um, that are associated with Rett syndrome, and we're also finding that also in autism. So um, I think one of the things we may know or we may be finding out is why Rett syndrome actually um, presents the child that actually looks like a child that has autism. There may be similar features, and this may be a model to understand autism and to, and to gain a deeper understanding of autism. I'm just... You're drawing a similarity between Rett syndrome that has cortical hyperexcitability, and you're mentioning uh, mitochondrial disorder, and I'm just going to throw in a third thing here and hope it's a logical question. Um, but any areas of the brain where um, there may be focal lesions or deterioration, um, such as may associated, be associated with seizures, Correct me if I'm wrong. Does this have anything to do with the um, the abnormal way that the neurons are firing or synapses are able to connect or some such? Well, I think that there um, Rett syndrome itself is a, a neurodegenerative disorder, uh-huh. and um, and we know that that there are parts of the brain that degenerate um, as uh, the child grows older. We don't know that that actually occurs in autism. Um, it, it may be we know that the growth of the brain slows down, but we don't know that um, there's areas that degenerate. We know there is some pathology. That is, the studies that have actually looked at the brain of individuals with autism under the microscope have found areas of the brain that uh, that look like they could um, be either. Um, dysfunctional because they haven't developed right, or it may be um, due to the fact that um, there was damage later on. We do know that uh, that some type of seizures can cause damage um, to 
certain parts of the brain. However, in general, most seizures um, outside of the neonatal period um, don't cause any type of real degeneration um, of the brain. Um, and what they do is they may, um, uh, they may cause remolding of the brain um, at some point. Now, um, of course, this is complicated and wrapped in this. We were talking about also mitochondrial disorders, and we know that mitochondrial disorders, those are the very bad mitochondrial disorders, do cause degeneration of certain parts of the brain. Um, and, and usually uh, those parts of the, the deep areas of the brain, we see the changes, but it also can be the whole brain. And one of the mysteries in autism is that even the children with documented mitochondrial disorders and autism don't have these same changes. But is, are you talking about a difference between a true mitochondrial disease and a mild mitochondrial dysfunction that may be acquired? In other well, words, a child, if I, a child is born with what appears to be a severe you know, mitochondrial disease, is there a difference between that and a child who... Uh, presents with a mild mitochondrial dysfunction later? Well, um, first of all, it it may be, and that may be the difference, is that uh, what we may be seeing is milder mitochondrial disorders, yes. Um, Whether they've had the mitochondrial disorder from birth or whether it was acquired along the way, I don't think we've made that connection. Um, So um, probably... What we think is that there's some type of mild mitochondrial disorder that doesn't manifest itself um, unless certain things occur along the way. So um, you're right that mitochondrial disorders that are very severe um, start very young with very um, very severe symptoms, and we see these see these severe changes on MRI scans. Um, and uh, we see other changes also. What could be happening in autism and mitochondrial disorders is that we do have these these mild mitochondrial disorders that may not express themselves unless the body is stressed in some way that is maybe from some type of toxins um, or other type of stresses um, that um, other types of diseases could be that you know a child may have a mitochondrial disorder, and if they didn't also have severe allergies or or other severe um, medical problems, they might not manifest it. So it, it's a complicated um, um, interaction, uh, and it's it's really um, not clear whether the mitochondrial disorder is acquired or something that's what we call subclinical and doesn't actually show up until um, later on, until there's some type of uh, trigger. Okay. A very interesting question. And just backtracking for a minute, um, back to the discussion on uh, receptive language organization, your study and the other studies on this, do they lend themselves to any sort of therapeutic approach? Well, I think that they do. Uh, I think that they very much um, do. And to understand how the brain is actually processing um, language is very, very important. One, um, because uh, as I mentioned, that there's multiple parts of the brain that interact, um, and it'd be important to concentrate on the uh, on the one aspect of language 
that we want the child to use to communicate um, instead of complicating this with, with other types of um, more complicated language. Um, I think that also understanding how there's different areas of the brain and, and, um, and what they can and cannot do will allow us to tailor those therapies so that we can understand exactly the potential of the child. Very good. And more on this when we come back with Dr. Richard Fry. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Richard Fry, and we were touching on many different fascinating issues, and now we're going to uh, talk about the fact, uh, again, that a lot of children face seizures. Um, in fact, many of us are hearing more and more about this as children are getting older towards adolescence. And Dr. Fry, do we know the prevalence of seizures in autism? Is the percentage greater than as compared to, say, the general public? Do we know the age distribution? Um, sure, yes, um, we do. You, uh, um, seizures are more prevalent in children with autism. Um, and children with uh, um, developmental disabilities um, in general, um, one of the things is that uh, seizures and autism are very complex. We do know that what we call clinical seizures, 
um, seem to express themselves towards adolescence in children with autism. Um, and I should um, take this time to um, make the differentiation between what we call clinical seizures and subclinical seizures. So a clinical seizure is um, what most people think of as a seizure. That is, somebody loses control and has jerking of their body. Um, and this is caused by some abnormal electrical activity that is, uh, uh, that is happening in the brain, specifically in the cortex of the brain. Um, why these clinical seizures seem to be prevalent towards adolescence and um, older childhood not really clear. Of course, um, we know that there's changes um, in the uh, um, in hormones that are occurring during that time. Um, although we don't know exactly how those are um, tied into these development of seizures. Of course, uh, uh, testosterone is something that increases in males, but that's thought to at least in neurotypical individuals to be more of uh, more have an have an anti seizure anti epileptic effect. We know estrogen estrogen in uh, in women seems to have a pro seizure effect, and um, in neurotypical individuals, there's uh, something called catamenial epilepsy, where um, seizures can get worse during certain parts of the menstrual cycle. Um, so it may very well be that there's uh, that there's certain types of hormonal changes, but there's many other things that um, can occur. Um, it may be that um, the uh, the brain, how it's developed or repaired itself um, um, during childhood, um, it may have um, laid down a pattern of connectivity that's caused hyperexcitability, um, and that uh, that can actually cause um, children to have seizures. However, there's um, many other reasons why this could occur. We know that there's certain types of epilepsies um, that actually manifest themselves in um, in adolescence, um, and um, and this happens uh, naturally, and that has to do with the timing of uh, changes in the the nerve cells um, and um, in their metabolism and their molecular structure. Um, and those same changes uh, could be going on in autism, and it may be that children with autism are more susceptible at that time to these changes. Um, we don't know. Um, but it's something that we we need to find out more about. Okay, so there could be... Am I hearing you say that there can be an association between metabolism and seizures? There most definitely could be a change, a, a, an association between metabolism and seizures, and uh, and that's one possibility. There's many different causes of epilepsy, um, and the uh, uh, one of the keys is to find out what the cause is, because in in uh, typical individuals and neurotypical individuals, there's many different causes of epilepsy. And one of the things that we try and do, um, especially in what we call refractory epilepsy, that is epilepsy that seems to go on and we can't control, we try and find out why this is occurring so we can treat the underlying cause. If there was some type of underlying cause, some type of metabolic change that occurred in adolescence, um, that we knew about um, and we could treat in uh, children with autism, then uh, then um, we may be able to um, prevent the seizures from occurring. Okay, good. So does there seem to be a higher prevalence of epilepsy among children and adolescents these days than decades gone by, or 
is it just that there's more autism these days and there's a higher prevalence of seizures um, relatively in individuals with autism? I think that the uh, there hasn't been a substantial rise in um, epilepsy over the past decades. Nothing like the the rise in what we uh, we see in autism, and so most of the um, seizures are probably associated with underlying um, with underlying disabilities, developmental disabilities, which we're now realizing much better. Hmm, okay. So if you're talking about seizures and metabolics, would, is, there, is there some, for example, we know that some children with autism have an MTHFR uh, uh, polymorphism and uh, gene polymorphism, and we know that some children with autism have uh, a mitochondrial dysfunction. What's the association between mitochondrial dysfunction and seizures? What's the intersection between metabolics and seizures or mito and metabolics and seizures or well we know, we know that there is an association between um, mitochondrial disorders and seizures and that um, individuals with mitochondrial disorders uh, uh, may have seizures and seizures are one of the um, uh, clinical criteria that makes it um, more um, uh, more likely that you may have a mitochondrial disorder. It's in, in one of the definitions um, because mitochondrial disorders can actually cause um, problems with metabolism and energy in the nerve cells, and they may, may not be able to actually um, operate as uh, 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 on the same time scale um, and um, with the same interactions as, as they should. Um, it may be primarily the mitochondria in the nerve cells, but we've also found um, other disorders. We know that uh, that individuals with mitochondrial disorders may have problems actually transporting nutrients into the brain. Um, with, there's documented um, individuals with mitochondrial disorders that have a cerebral folate deficiency, and it's thought that it may be that they may not be able to transport folate into the brain. So there may be secondary reasons why the uh, why the brain may be more susceptible to seizures, and it it may not um, be exactly clear. We know that um, some individuals with mitochondrial disorders actually respond to the ketogenic diet, which is something that's used um, when we have difficulty um, transporting glucose into the uh, the nervous system. So this may be another mechanism. So there's many direct and indirect mechanisms where mitochondrial disorders could cause um, seizure disorders. Now, if a child had something like MTHFR, wouldn't that um, indicate that there could be a problem with folate metabolism? Yes. Uh, well, well, if they, they have... So we, we need to... Um, you're absolutely right. Um, by actually having one of the, um, the gene polymorphisms that would confer um, some trouble with folate metabolism would would, um, would indicate that the the body may have some trouble with folate metabolism. However, it, it is important to separate um, gene um, tests from functional tests, and um, and this is the same idea of any type of um, gene that somebody might have. It puts them at risk. You're right for having a disorder of folate metabolism, um, and that can be pretty serious. And uh, I think that children that may have 
other problems, other developmental problems, are very susceptible to um, having disorders of folate metabolism, uh, certainly when they have these risk factors. And it's important to take that into account, I think, when managing children with, uh, with autism. Well, personally, now I'm really curious about this because personally, um, it's my belief that there, there can't be a genetic epidemic. It's just uh, impossible. And I've got to suspect that there were kids walking around with MTHFR for decades and decades and we didn't have an autism epidemic. So I'm wondering if something else, you know, intersected with the MTHFR that caused an increase in, um, you know, prevalence of autism and seizures among those with autism. Well, I I think that that you're right. It's very interesting in the MTHR, um, I'm sorry, for mutation um, and, and system is uh, what I like to call um, um, a vulnerability. Um, That is that within itself, it probably isn't directly related to autism or seizures or any specific type of um, um, developmental disorder, but in combination with other types of abnormalities, um, it's... Um, confers a risk factor and a vulnerability of the organism to have other problems. And it's probably many things that come together. One of the things that um, I think we know from studying autism is that it's very complex and that there's no one answer. And that all of these little pieces come together in some way um, to cause some problem with development um, of the, uh, the body and the brain and all of the body systems. So when we're talking about seizures and metabolism, for example, what can we do to help? You mentioned the ketogenic diet. So what would be the role of other nutrients to control them, such as um, people use vitamin B6 or pyridoxal 5-phosphate, P5P, magnesium, taurine, dimethylglycine, uh, modified Atkins diet, things like that? Sure. I mean, these are all, some of these are therapies that we actually use for seizures. Um, And sometimes we know how they work and sometimes we don't know how they work. Of course, um, if we have a reason to use one of these therapies um, and we know that this therapy is going to help, that's the, um, that's the best situation. And sometimes we use these therapies empirically. Um, there's many reasons why some of these therapies might work. That is, some of the uh, abnormalities in metabolism that we've talked about can be supported by these nutrients. So it's important that uh, that we um, we think about trying these um, certain types of supplements, nutrients empirically um, to help if um, there are no other things that are helping at a certain point. And more on things to help when we come back. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and we'll be right back with Dr. Richard Fry. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the 
the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten, and VirusStop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Jack, he'll get you right back to your health. JackLaLane.com presents Jack LaLane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Each week, Jack is joined by Elaine LaLane and his nephew, bodybuilder, kinesiologist, and personal trainer, Chris LaLane, to answer your questions and help you overcome your fitness roadblocks. That's three times the diet and fitness know-how. Three times the entertainment. Tune in every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific to Jack LaLane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Richard Fry, and we were talking about seizures and uh, nutrients that people have used to help. And Dr. Fry, um, have we covered the full uh, gamut of what kinds of seizures there are? And, um, you know, some people say that their children show symptoms of uh, rage, but, you know, maybe they don't see outward seizures and such. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's a, a very interesting question. It's a very important question. Um, what we found is that children from very young, uh, many of them with autism, have um, abnormalities in the brain that look like what we call subclinical seizures. That is, that there's electrical disturbances in certain parts of the brain um, that don't manifest themselves in what we um, think of as a seizure, that is, a jerking of the arms or losing control. However, we know that there's certain types of uh, um, seizure disorders that are associated with these so-called subclinical seizures that affect cognition. The, uh, the best example was something called Lander-Kleffner syndrome, um, where, um, there, where um, doctors Lander-Kleffner actually described um, children that had regression in um, speech and language, usually at a later age than, um, than autism, and found out that, um, that these types of seizures um, or this type of sorry, this type of epilepsy that, that was ongoing in the brain, these subclinical seizures were, um, were disturbing the way the brain could actually um, um, learn and um, process language. Um, there was a classic study um, using MEG um, back in 1998, um, I believe. And um, what, uh, what these individuals showed was that um, <clears throat> children who had so-called Lander-Kleffner syndrome and just uh, uh, a problem with language had discharges, epileptiform discharges, in the language areas, whereas those children that had characteristics that were more like uh, um, autism or PDD also had discharges either in the right hemisphere or the frontal lobes. Of course, the frontal lobes are very important for controlling behavior, something that, uh, that we find um, we have difficulty with with some children with autism. Um, 
And so this is uh, this was very interesting. In fact, using MEG, they suggested that up to 80% of the children um, with PDD had these uh, discharges. There's been a more recent study from Spain that suggests that that it um, this the prevalence of these discharges may be 80 80% or higher. We don't um, have the ability to use the MEG as a screening tool. We use an EEG, and we know that uh, probably between 10 and 20% of children with um, autism have um, these discharges that are disturbing the brain. The MEG is something that's much more sensitive, and maybe in the future we'll be able to use that um, device as a screening tool. But right now um, we're able to screen children very young, um, that have characteristics of autism to see if they have these subclinical epilepsies. And the importance of this is that uh, we find that some children respond extremely well, and we've reviewed um, the, some of the cases that we've had here and found out that uh, we had approximately a 70% response rate to anti-epileptic medications. Of course, we didn't look for underlying metabolic disturbances, as we have talked about before, and treating those may have uh, may be able to um, improve um, the uh, the ability of the brain to develop and improve the subclinical epilepsy in other ways too. And I think that will be to the future to find out how we can do that. Okay, so, is there a correlation between uh, you mentioned behavior? Is there a correlation between rage behavior and po- possibly in subclinical seizures or well, um, uh, it's it's not clear. It is possible that it can occur, and um, there have been some very good studies in um, in individuals that are uh, um, neurotypically developing individuals who then have seizures. And there's been some very interesting studies on adults, which um, have actually looked at changes in mood and behavior um, and seizure frequency. Um, And um, these studies have shown that uh, individuals that um, have um, poorly controlled seizures or or during times when they've had more seizures, um, they have more changes in mood and dysregulation in behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, It's thought that uh, this may be what we call a post-ictal phenomenon. That is, after somebody has a seizure, part of the brain goes to sleep and it, it can't operate and especially if you have those seizures in the frontal lobe or areas of the temporal lobe that uh, that are attached to um, areas that control emotions and behavior, it's it, it's very possible that um, that this can occur. And it's very important for children that uh, that have these type of behaviors, these rage behaviors, especially if they're unprovoked, um, to um, make sure that they're not having any subclinical epilepsy. Although I must say there there are a lot of other reasons for these behaviors too that are unrelated to epilepsy. Yeah, and I I know we don't have time to talk about it right now, but some people also think that testosterone is associated um, with rage behaviors, and and that gets back to wondering if testosterone has anything to do with seizures. And we don't have to figure this out uh, right now, but it's just some food for thought, something I'd be curious about uh, as a layperson. And, and you're right, um, there has been a lot of theories that testosterone does have to do with rage behavior. Um, and um, it, may, uh, it, it may not be that testosterone has to cause seizures, which causes the rage behavior, but if you also have seizures and you're more vulnerable, and this is where this vulnerability comes in, if you're more vulnerable to have dysfunction of your brain and mood lability and, and a, uh, a slight inability to control mood, and then you put another factor, like um, some abnormal testosterone on top of that, 
then you have two factors which put you at increased risk for having, let's say, rage behaviors or other types of outbursts. Mm. Well, in the time remaining, let's talk about the mitochondria. Um, we never actually defined what the mitochondria do and what it, it is about their role in the body that if it's dysfunctional, it could cause autism. Well, the, uh, the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. Um, the body needs energy, and the energy is carried um, in specific molecules. Uh, the most prevalent is something called ATP, um, and this has to be made somewhere. Um, and it's made by these little powerhouses called the mitochondria, and they're almost like cells within a cell. There are little areas within the cell. There's probably about um, 100 or so per cell, um, and they float around in the cell, and um, and the um, um, they process the nutrients to actually create the energy. Um, now, the interesting thing about mitochondria is that they actually have some of their own DNA. So some of um, their metabolism um, and their enzymes and structure are actually controlled by their own DNA, but some of it is actually controlled by the cell's DNA in the nucleus. So they're very complicated, um, what we call organelles. Okay. So is the mitochondrial dysfunction primary to autism or secondary, and what would we test or look for? We might have to continue this discussion on another show. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, it's a good question, and it's complicated. Um, and uh, what uh, uh, the idea that mitochondrial disorders may be primary um, to autism is a question that many people have raised. Um, the fact is that probably mitochondrial dysfunction um, result in an inability of the brain to develop in the correct way that it should and cause this um, change in the brain which um, we call, which results in autism. There's probably other ways of the brain um, developing in the way that we call autism also. So I think we're looking at what we might describe as more of a dual diagnosis. That is, you have a mitochondrial disorder and it's manifesting itself in the way of autism. Um, so we have two related things, um, and the cause and effect is not exactly clear because probably the mitochondrial disorder itself wouldn't absolutely cause autism. There's probably other factors that um, interact with it to, to um, result in the brain developing in a way that autism develops. Is it under study? Is there a possibility that something could have acted upon the mitochondria to throw a monkey wrench and, and how they helped or or hindered development? Um, sure, and, and that's very true. Um, we know that um, sometimes people can manifest um, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. That is, some of their mitochondria might not be functioning correctly. Um, and if you have that risk factor by putting extra um, metabolic and other types of loads on the body could cause that to actually show up. Well, I think we're going to need to uh, continue the discussion at another time. Is that all right with you, Dr. Fry? That's fine with me. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today for this fascinating discussion. And thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. To our listeners, next week, October 21st, my guest will be Tom Bohager, author of the new book entitled Everything You Need to Know About Enzymes. He's president of Enzymedica, a nutritional supplement company that specializes in enzymes and enzyme therapy. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
Medica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.